Once again, good evening to you. There are, in this country, over 70 million people who claim an association with the Catholic Church. And that ends up being a little over 22, 23% of the population. Worldwide, about 1.4 billion people claim association with the Catholic Church. Joe Biden claims association with the Catholic Church. When you read up on his background, they observe Mass in, uh, at St. Joseph's Cathedral in Greenville, Delaware. So a lot of people associated with um, this enormous system called the Roman Catholic Church. Many people make a pilgrimage every year over to uh, the Vatican City in Rome, about 108 acres there, known to be the smallest country in the world. Our country has an ambassador there paid for by uh, tax dollars. When you see the Pope in the media, you see people falling down before him, kissing his ring, kissing his hand, kissing his feet. And it's a sad occurrence, really. There's this um, internet series. I've watched a couple episodes. It's called The Chosen. The Chosen. And it's on the life of, of Christ, and they're trying to show it on television and make it realistic. And, um, and they usually get some things quite wrong, but it's, sometimes it's interesting. The actor who plays Jesus in the internet series called The Chosen, I think his name is Jonathan Rumi, R O U M I E, something like that. He's of the Catholic Church. And um, I saw a picture of him on some place on the internet the other day and he was shaking hands with Pope Francis. And he commented below the picture of that that it had been a lifelong dream of his since he was a little boy to go and meet uh, the Pope. It's a sad occurrence that many are so um, misinformed on uh, the actual truth of the New Testament regarding this. So we want to uh, take our time this evening to examine what I call the uh, two foundation stones of the Catholic uh, Church. And I'll mention those as we get started. And then we want to look at several scriptures uh, that show plainly that this Catholic doctrine cannot be supported by the, by the New Testament. Okay? So that's kind of the direction that we're headed. But it's a serious idea that, um, that is proclaimed by the, by the church. Let's see if I can get you.
If you hear it again, Mike, just ignore it because I can't, can't find my phone. Okay. Let me read this to you that was written years ago by a defender of the Catholic movement. He writes this, Our Lord God the Pope, another God upon the earth, King of kings and Lord of lords, the same is the dominion of God and the Pope. To believe that our Lord God, the Pope, might not decree as He decrees, it were a matter of heresy. The power of the Pope is greater than all created power and extends itself to things celestial, terrestrial, and infernal. The Pope doeth whatever He wills, even things unlawful, and is more than God. And that comes from a defender of the Catholic doctrine. And in this one, in matters of jurisdiction, the Pope enjoys supreme, universal, and immediate jurisdiction over the whole church and every member of it. This supremacy is not given by the cardinals who elect him, but immediately by God himself. The Pope is the church, church's supreme and infallible teacher, its supreme legislator, and its supreme judge. So they're quite serious when they bring this sort of, or allude to this authority of the Pope. And so let's get started on what we might say about this. First of all, we bring up the principle of silence, as we do in many of our cases. Remember, a week or so ago, we discussed mechanical instruments of music and no authority for that. And one of the principles there is the principle of silence. In other words, God specifies what He wants in music and worship, which is singing. And then He doesn't say anything else about it. He doesn't have to. Because he has spoken. He has spoken. In the same way God has spoken about his church. The organization of his church. The matters of salvation. Matters of worship. And matters of marriage. And matters of daily living. Matters of mission and so forth. Okay. If I were to say to you this evening. We're going to open up our Bibles. And, and see what the Bible has to say about the Pope and the Catholic Church. And then our study would immediately be over, wouldn't it? Because there is nothing in the New Testament, there's nothing in the Bible that even remotely supports this uh, super-sized um, system. Okay. But there are things that we can look at that will help us to see, uh, and not just help us to see, but also have some uh, material to share with our friends because there are many good people, good, honest people everywhere, uh, even in the Catholic Church, yes, many wonderful people that are there and who probably uh, have, not, have not even considered the things that we'll discuss uh, this evening. Okay. But there is the matter of silence. Silence. It's just not there and we respect God's uh, authority, God has spoken. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. 
God has spoken through His Son in these last days, and it's just simply um, not there. Now, the two foundation stones that I mentioned earlier. First foundation is the belief that that Christ gave Peter ultimate authority to speak as God on earth. Okay. And then the second foundation stone in the Catholic system is that after Peter, there were spiritual descendants, spiritual successors that can be named in the place of Peter's um, uh, seat and that they would have the same original power that Peter had on through the years. So the belief is that there's been a line of secession of the popes from Peter all the way down to our day to Pope uh, Francis. Okay. This simply does not um, support about the New Testament. New Testament. Let's begin in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. You remember that the Lord God, through direct speaking and visions, got Peter together with Cornelius. Cornelius, his household, first Gentile converts to Christianity. Cornelius and his household had a very good, honest heart, feared God. They were just waiting on someone to tell them the whole truth. If you look down to Acts 10, 25. Acts 10, 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. A man. Why didn't Peter, if he was the first pope, why didn't he receive that adoration? Why did he rebuke tenderly, of course? But why did he have Cornelius to stand up? Cornelius is only doing the very same things that you would see people do in front of the pope uh, on television today. So notice that in Acts 10, 25 and 26. You might flip your Bibles on over to Acts chapter 15 and be remembering that Acts 15 is about a big conference the early church had. There were many who were pushing for Christians who are obeying the gospel to consider also being circumcised, keep a part of the law of Moses. So they had a big meeting about this. And Peter is one of the speakers, if you look at Acts 15, 7-9, reminding folks that God had chosen him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, just like he did with the household of Cornelius. But he's not the only speaker. After him... um, Saul or Paul and Barnabas spoke up, and then after them, James. Now, this is not this is not James. This is James, the Lord's half brother, because the other James, back in Acts twelve, verse one, had been slaughtered uh, by Herod. Okay. This is James, the Lord's half brother. But James seems to be the lead spokesman. But the main thing is, here is to see that Peter enjoys no greater uh, prominence than any of these other fellows who are speaking toward. Uh, this issue. That's just a quick reference there to Acts chapter uh, 15. Be turning on over to 1 Corinthians uh, 9. This is the chapter that uh, digs down and shows support for uh, the church financially uh, supporting full-time gospel teachers and preachers. 
And Paul is standing up. There were a lot of critics of Paul in his day, and many of them were found here in Corinth. So Paul is standing up for all that. Uh, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, 3, beginning, 1 Corinthians 9, 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Okay. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord? And Cephas. Notice that. This would indicate what about Peter? Peter's other name is Cephas. And so when Paul says this, do we not have the right to lead about a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? What does that tell you about Cephas? Mary. And one of the doctrines of the Catholic Church is that the Pope is not to be married. They look at, they look at um, the single life, celibacy as a more sacred situation than matrimony. Here Peter uh, has a wife, and you can, you can prove that Peter even had children. How would you do that? How, how could you prove that Peter and his wife even had children? While you're thinking about that, there was a story told years ago. I've heard the older preachers tell this over the years, but evidently in a journalism college class, there was a contest. And the teacher said, whoever can come up with the shortest front page caption that would really grab people's attention, well, I'll, I'll give them a special prize. So the students worked and worked. And the fellow who won the prize, his caption was simply this. Two words. Pope elopes. So he, got the, he got the prize because that would, that would have been a shock uh, to people. But notice here that Peter uh, has a wife. Back in Matthew eight fourteen, we read that, that uh, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. How do you know that Peter and his wife also had children? Yeah. First Peter 5, um, Peter refers to himself as a fellow elder. And the list in First um, Timothy 3 and Titus 1 is that um, elders must have believing children. Okay. So just stopping off there at 1 Corinthians uh, 9. But go over to 2 Corinthians 11 with me. 2 Corinthians 11. Again, remember, both, in both letters to the Corinthians, Paul is having to defend himself as a true apostle, meaning because Paul came along a little bit late, later than the other apostles in the faith, many tried to cast doubt upon Paul, and uh, other reasons for that as well. But if you look down to 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is defending himself, and he says, Verse 5, verse 5. I consider that I am not in the least inferior to the chiefest apostles. King James says, what does King James say? Not one whit? He is not one whit behind the chiefest apostles. Now he didn't say the chiefest apostle. He said the chiefest apostles. There were prominent apostles. Who would you say they were? Would be. 
Who seemed to go with Jesus to the most places? Yeah. Seemed like when Jesus would pray, go up on the mountain and pray, or go up on the mountain to be transfigured, go into the garden in a deeper place, he would have Peter, James, and John with him. So they were prominent apostles. But Paul is saying here that he is not one whip behind any of the apostles. And that would include Peter. So the Bible again and again shows that Peter did not have any more authority than any other apostle, and he considered himself a fellow servant, fellow uh, elder, and, and so forth. So that's 2 Corinthians 11, verse 5. Jump over to Galatians 2, and notice how this incident would not square with the elevation that the Catholic Church um, puts upon Peter and the secession of popes. But notice in Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11, remember Cephas is Peter. Galatians 2, verse 11, And when Cephas came to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted in this hypocrisy as well, or some translations have dissimulation. They acted along with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away uh, by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you uh, force the Gentiles to live like Jews? But notice how Paul uh, had to make a stand here. Because Peter, even though Peter had been the one chosen to bring the gospel, to bring the keys of the kingdom to the Gentile world, yet he is acting uh, not in step with the truth of the gospel here. And Paul had to, even before them all, before them all, uh, he had to withstand Peter to the, to the face. Later in Peter's second epistle, along about 2 Peter 3, 14, 15, and 16, he refers to his beloved brother Paul. So this did not cause a division. It did not cause them to be enemies. Peter knew Paul was right on this. But notice how this incident here would never square with, with these quotations. With these quotations here that I refer to from these Catholic theo- theologians. Um, uh, he d- the Pope does whatsoever he wills even things unlawful and is more than God. I can't think of a more blasphemous statement than that. But here you see that Galatians 2 does not uh, square with that. Now jump on over to 1 Peter and a little bit in 2 Peter. If, if, if there was going to be an elevation, if there was going to be a supreme authority given to Peter, you would think that Peter would write about it uh, in, his, in his own letter. But it's almost as if the Holy Spirit anticipated these errors and so guided Peter to not only not mention anything like this, but, but also throw in um, 
little words and phrases that oppose such an exalted situation. For example, notice in 2 Peter 1 verse 1, Peter refers to himself, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. As you know in your reading, this is exactly how the Apostle Paul would start his letters. I'm a servant, I'm a slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so Peter did not look at himself any different than Paul looked at himself. He didn't he he looked to Paul as his fellow brother, he looked to other elders as his fellow elders, and he considered himself he was careful, you might say. He was careful to avoid any exalted titles. Any exalted titles. So he refers to himself in that way. As far as the foundation of the church goes, look at 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse number 6, Peter quotes from Scripture. He quotes from Scripture from Isaiah 28, verse 16. And he quotes it, referring this, applying this to Christ. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So instead of Peter referring to himself as part of the foundation church, he's again and again alluding to Christ being that very foundation. Now looking on over to 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, look how Peter directs the glory uh, toward God and Christ. 1 Peter 4, 11 and 12. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. And then chapter 5, 1 Peter 5. Notice again and again. Notice how Peter emphasizes that we need to be clothed with humility. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then... Jump up to verse 1 Peter 5, verse 3, as he instructs his fellow elders to not lord it over. That's one of the key phrases of the whole New Testament. Not to be domineering. Okay. This would fly directly in the face of what we see happening with the edicts and directions of the current. Pope and popes across the years. But the instruction is that no one, no one is to be lording it over, which simply means that God does not allow anybody to be a lord, master, or boss over any other church member. Okay. That's not the Spirit of Christ. And Peter repudiates such an idea, such a thought such an attitude. Okay. He drives himself away from that, as it were. And I'll show you why. Look back to Matthew 23. This is not only is Peter writing by the inspiration of God, but he is remembering the teachings of his own Lord. 
If you jump back to uh, Matthew 23 and Jesus' great sermon against Phariseeism, beginning in verse 5, here's what the Pharisees do. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. And they love to be called rabbi by others. But, Jesus says, verse 8, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brethren, brothers. And call no man your father. All these millions and billions of people that refer to the Catholic Church as their home, they call the Pope Holy Father. Holy Father. Can you think of anything that's more just in direct conflict with the Jesus Christ than that? Call no man Father on earth. Verse 9. For you have one Father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor who is Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I don't know how you refer to yourself. You know, people, somebody asks you, what are you religiously? How do you identify yourself? But in your mind, and even in your audible explanation, you've got to have in there servant and brother. Because Christ is, is one, again and again, everywhere you go, you just bounce off of, off of it, whether it's Paul, whether it's Peter, whether it's Christ, whether it's John. It's all about being a brother, a fellow servant. And so that's how we look at it. That's how Christ looks at it. So Christ is in control of our thoughts and our words. So, we see here that just about everywhere you turn in the New Testament, this idea of exalting Peter above the other apostles or exalting Peter as some God on earth just doesn't square. Now, quickly, think about some of the arguments that are used by the Catholic Church. In Matthew chapter 16, you're familiar with verses 13 to 19 where Jesus promises, I will build my church. The Catholic Church looks at that because there is a, a um, similarity between Peter's name and this other word called rock. They look at it to read like this. They have, they have Jesus saying, uh, Peter, uh, you are a rock, and upon you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. Okay. But Christ doesn't say that. Okay. Uh, the word for Peter does mean rock. Okay. And then Christ refers to rock himself. The word Peter comes from the word Petros, which means little rock or pebble. Something you might use to mark the boundary of a land or something someone might use to throw at a great big giant coming at you. But it's a, it's a little rock. It's a little rock. The word that Christ uses when he says, upon this rock I'll build my church, is the word Petra. And that means a, a large, massive stone. Okay. Massive bedrock. Something that would be used to build a house or a superstructure upon. So what Christ is actually saying, he's saying, you are Peter, Peter, little rock, and upon this massive rock, okay, I'm going to build my church. Well, what is this massive rock? Well, Peter had just said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. It's upon that identity of Jesus, that confession of Peter, is a, that which the church would be built upon. 
Now you know that in grammar there's first person, second person, and third person. The one doing the speaking is referred to as the first person in, in first person. The one being speaking to, second person. The one being speaking about, third person. So you see Christ makes a difference here between Peter and the rock. Peter is in grammar, he's in the second person. Jesus is speaking to him, so he's in second person. But Jesus is speaking about the rock. You are Peter, Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock. So he goes to third person. Christ knows how to make a distinction between what he means uh, to say. The big thing here is, is to notice that Jesus is creating a, a figurative picture for us. Okay. He's the builder. That which is being built is the church. Okay. The foundation is the identity of himself, what Peter had just said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The key holder is Peter, because he goes on to say to Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. And the keys of the kingdom is the gospel that was preached by Peter and the other apostles. This is actually a prophecy of Jesus, a prediction. Peter, you're going to be the one. I don't know why he chose Peter, but he chose Peter. Okay. Peter's going to be the one that's going to preach the gospel on the day of Pentecost and open up the doors of the kingdom. And then Peter has chosen to go to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10, uh, with Cornelius. Okay. Now, in verse uh, Matthew uh, 16, verse 19, Jesus says, Whatsoever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. One thing you might note there is, this is said to Peter there, but it's said to all the apostles in Matthew 18, verse 18. So you can make a note of that if you're ever studying with Matthew 18, 18. That same language is used uh, with the other apostles. Now our Catholic friends would have this to read uh, concerning the Pope. Whatever you do, heaven will agree with what you do. That's how they interpret that. Whatever you do, heaven will come along behind you and agree with what you're doing. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying... Whatever Peter and the other apostles, whatever has already been bound in heaven, whatever God has decreed in heaven, is what you're going to be decreeing, what you're going to be binding on earth. Whatever has already been loosed in heaven, then that's what you're going to be loosing on earth. And so, in no way does Jesus set up some sort of special authority for Peter there in Matthew uh, 16. Going over to Luke chapter 22, 31 and 32, you remember uh, Jesus said to Peter and the other apostles, he said, now Satan desires to have you. He wanted all the apostles. And Satan wants everybody in man. Okay. That he may sift you as wheat. Okay. But Jesus then changed his uh, direction there and he looked to Peter personally and he said, but Peter, I have prayed for you. I have made supplication for thee that your faith will not fall. But after you have turned, this is another prophecy. Jesus is actually predicting that Peter would, would fail him. And we remember, Peter denies the Lord. I'm not, I'm not part of him. I'm not part of that band. Okay. Peter will deny the Lord. So Jesus says, when you have come back to me, when you fall and when you come back to me, strengthen the brethren. Establish the brethren. Now, 
Catholic theologians read that and they read into that that when Jesus says strengthen the brethren or establish the brethren that he's given Peter ultimate authority there on earth. But that's easy to see that's not the case because that same word is used in other places in reference to other people. Uh, One would be Romans 1 and um, just for your consideration Romans 1 verse 11 when Paul is anticipating coming to Rome to see the brethren there to work, Romans 1 verse 11, he says, I long to see you, Romans 1 11, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That's the same word. Very same word as in Luke 22. So to use that ideal that Peter somehow has ultimate authority because he uses he is told to strengthen the brethren, you'd have to say also that Paul would um, have the same authority. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, in verse 2, it's another interesting use of this word. I love this little word. It's what we ought to be doing all the time. is strengthening one another, establishing one another. So in verse 2, Paul said, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Jesus to establish you and exhort you in your faith. So there, Timothy will be coming to them in Thessalonica, helping to establish or strengthen uh, their faith. And then one other, Second Peter 1, verse 12. In Peter's own words, he says... Um, 2 Peter 1.12 Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So that's the same word there. Establish, strengthen. Notice how the establishment takes place. Notice how the strength comes. Through the truth. Through the truth. So these men were simply Peter and Paul and Timothy and Peter. They were teaching the gospel and all that goes along, along with that and by that, okay, people are exhorted and encouraged and strengthened and established uh, in the faith. And so just notice that. So sometimes the uh, Catholic folks will use Matthew 16. Sometimes they'll use Luke 22. And sometimes they'll use Peter's conversation with the Lord in John 21 after Jesus had been resurrected uh, from the dead, and he's talking to Peter. You remember he asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And what would Peter say each time? You know that I did. And then what would Jesus say to him? Yeah. Feed my lambs. And then he said, tend my sheep. Okay, there's two different words there. The word, first word for feed my lambs is simply the word for giving somebody food. But for us there would be spiritual food, the Word of God. But then he says in that context, tend to my sheep. That's a, that's a more broad word. It means to, to nourish, to uh, cherish, to provide for. Provide for. Okay. And what he's telling Peter is, he's saying, Peter, those converts you make, those, those people that you teach and they come to me you need to nourish them. You need to tend to them. You need to cherish them. You need to help them to grow. That's what that word means. That's all that word means. But our uh, Roman Catholic friends look at that 
as an, an ultimate authority statement that uh, Jesus has given to Peter. But not so. Not so. In Acts 20, verse 28, the same word is used in reference to the uh, elders of the church um, in Ephesus. Paul speaking to them. He says, Take heed to yourselves, Acts 20, 28, and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church. But it's the same word here. To tend to the church, to cherish, to nourish, to provide for its needs. Okay? To take care of your converts. It's not just an instruction to elders, it's an instruction to all of us. To any of us, because as we lead someone to Christ, you know, we got to think about the second part of the Great Commission. First part, Matthew 28, verse 19, to teach, baptize, but then to keep teaching them for nourishment and for, um, for growth, spiritual growth. And so, Matthew 16, Luke 22, and John 21, 15, 18 are some of the passages that are sought to be used uh, to try to prove that Peter was actually given authority to, to speak as God on earth. But as you can see, uh, that's just far, far, far from what is being said. And then notice from these other passages that we mentioned from Acts 10, Acts uh, 15, Galatians uh, 2, and 2 Corinthians 11, not one whip behind the others. And then notice Peter's approach there in 1 Peter uh, 1, 2, 4, and 5, again and again. There's no reference to any of this uh, papal um, authority there. So really there's no foundation for the Catholic system to exist whatsoever. And we must be ready to share these important ideals. Not, not in a way that, in which we're trying to embarrass someone, but simply because it is, it is mankind. It is uh, religious people across the years who have set up uh, these false systems. This is just one of many false systems set up. But this was a big one. This was a big one. Let me um, also refer you. I still have it here. Um, I'm really high on these um, old Jewel Miller booklets. We were able to go through one, two, and three for a while. But we didn't get to four. This one is called God's Plan for Redeeming Man. Okay. This is when you would lead someone to be baptized after you go through number four with someone. Okay. Don't you want to help make converts to Christ? Number five is also hugely important. It's called the history of the church, and it gets into the reason I'm holding this up. Number five gets into how the Catholic system began to come into place after the second, third centuries, a um, couple hundred years down the road after, after Christ. It begins to show you the, the, how that um, slowly um, the leaders of the church began to evolve 
into the system that we now see uh, with the Catholic Church. Um, it was kind of a blessing for Constantine, Roman ruler, to become friendly uh, to the early church. It helped stop persecution. But on the other side of that, his friendliness with the church and church leaders eventually led to this Catholic system. And that is, that is brought out really well in number five of the Jill Miller booklets. And we have a number of these. And uh, if you'd like a copy, just, just see me. But it's very valuable as you're leading someone. When you're leading someone to Christ, you know, we, you can't pull down a big church history book this wide, okay? They'll run away from you, and they should. Okay. But we have men, brethren, across the years in, the, in our great brotherhood have, who have been able to condense it down to where you can see, okay, I see the New Testament, and I see what's going on in the world, and I can, I can see how they, they wandered away from the truth. Appreciate being in class with you. I hope some of these passages can help us be ready to share the gospel, but also uh, take on the disposition, take on the mindset that the Lord would have us to have uh, as we serve Him. Thank you so much. We'll take about a five-minute break.